Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our topic in this podcast is food marketing, and our guest is Professor Boyd Swinburne, who's joined us from Australia. There, he's chair in population health and director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Obesity Prevention at Deakin University, and uh, in my mind, one of the more creative scientists in the field, somebody doing very important work in understanding what's driving the obesity problem and what might be done about it. So welcome, Boyd. Thank you. The issue of food marketing, highly contentious. There are players with enormous influence and have a stake in this. Uh, There are laws that either prevent or allow governments to take action against food marketing. So before we talk about what might be done, let's talk about how big of a problem it is. So when I introduced you, I should have mentioned that you're the chief architect of something called the Sydney Principles, which lay out uh, uh, and recommended actions food industry can take regarding food marketing. So before we talk about the specific principles, let's set the problem of marketing in context. How much of it is there? How big of a problem it is? Why should people care about this? Well, it's a huge problem, I and mean, this is one of the major parts of the push factor that that I've mentioned before about how the food industry um, gets us to eat more calories by promoting them. And this is all quite legitimate legal uh, practice on, beh- on behalf of the food industry, although some of it uh, does push the boundaries and they get their fingers burnt every so often. But largely, the it's 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 legal and it's very effective. Uh, the area of most concern to me is marketing to children. I think that's the area that is, in my view, is unethical. Uh, although at a population level we don't really see it as that, but I believe that in uh, 10, 20 years or so we will look back and think that it was unethical to allow, unethical of society to allow large multinational food companies to market directly to young children to get them to eat foods that we know and the government knows and everyone knows is likely to promote obesity. So I just think that's um, unethical, although it's not necessarily seen as that at the moment. But it's a very large problem, huge money's invested in it, which is why it's hugely contested. Is there any um, number that people use now to give the relative balance of marketing of healthy versus unhealthy foods to children? Well, there have been many studies around the world looking at the types of foods that are that are promoted to children, and almost all of them are what we would call unhealthy food or junk food, high in fat and salt and sugar. Um, every study that I've seen shows that the marketing is dominated by that. You don't see marketing for, for carrots uh, on on television you see it for the junk food so it's heavily skewed towards that we know that marketing is effective Uh, we know that it promotes preferences that it promotes uh, requests the so-called pester power Um, and it's they continue to do it because it increases sales and that's what they're in the business of is increasing sales so What, what is your opinion of the industry claim that they're only driving brand choice rather than desire for a a whole category of foods. For example, the industry might might claim that people who are going to drink sugared beverages are going to drink them, and we just want a bigger part of the market share if we're Coke, so we take market share from Pepsi, mm-hmm. but we're not driving up desire for sugared beverages as a category. And the same argument could be made for sugared cereals, let's say, where they might push desire for Fruit Loops over Captain Crunch, but 
not for the whole category. Do you, yeah. What's your opinion of that? Well, I think we've heard that argument before, and particularly in, in tobacco, and that's what the tobacco industry has always argued. But uh, I think that it's been heavily discredited. I think that marketing does increase um, brand awareness and brand choice and brand preference, but it does also have an effect on the whole of category. I think there's good evidence for that. So to me, those claims are against the evidence, and they're a bit disingenuous. To be so honest. you being the chief architect of the Sydney principle, let's let's hear a little bit about the history of this. What was what was the impetus for? We can talk about the principles in just mm-hmm. a moment, but what was the history and the impetus for um, declaring that this was an important thing to do? Well, the International Obesity Task Force, of which I'm on the the steering committee, was keen to try to push the boundaries and try to stake out the ground in relation to marketing to children, and they're keen to do it on a on a human rights and an ethical. Uh, basis. Part of the problem when this discussion comes up is that it's taken on a risks or benefits basis. In other words, what are the potential benefits to the children? What are the potential risks to the to the industry? And those are kind of weighed as if they're equally balanced, as if they're equally important. Um, but if one uh, grounds the debate and grounds the principles within within human rights, within protection of the child, within ethics, then I think we're talking about a very different proposition. So um, the International Obesity Task Force was interested to try to describe what those principles might be for countries uh, to follow to reduce marketing to children. So I think you've inferred this, but let me explore it just a little bit more. There, You talked about ethics and about human rights and the protection of children. So. How would that all apply to food marketing in particular? Is it that the concern that food marketing has a toxic effect on the well-being of children and therefore their basic human right is to be protected from it? Yeah, absolutely. There are there are human rights around protection of the children, the human rights around the right to food and the right to health. All of these impinge upon uh, what a country should be doing or a government should be doing to support those human rights for its population, particularly the vulnerable population, and children uh, are vulnerable, which is, uh, which is why it's a societal responsibility. So we're trying to shift the ground and shift the focus to where I believe it belongs, which is focused on the child and supporting the child. And it does invoke another um, principle, which is the precautionary principle, which is often used when there is uncertainty in the evidence uh, around potential harm. But if we wait for certainty in the evidence, then it may be too late and a whole lot of harm will have happened in the meantime. And so we're rather invoking this kind of precautionary principle. We have this vulnerable population. Let's, uh, let's protect them. So if a child could potentially be harmed by marketing, but the evidence isn't yet definitive, one would default to the protection of the child. That's right, and default to a set of principles that would guide action. All right, so how did the Sydney principles come about? You mentioned the International Obesity Task Force, and there, there was a good reason for pulling this together. What was the process by which these were determined? So we, we developed a set of core principles, working with, with people, experts in the field, we sent them out for consultation amongst obesity experts. We got feedback, then we sent it out for global consultation, including to all of the uh, the food industry uh, that we could we could find an email to. We got a whole lot of responses back, and we modified them accordingly. Uh, what what was what was quite clear was that there was a huge amount of consensus. Interestingly, even with the food industry, on all of the principles except for one. 
And the one that was most contentious was whether these um, actions, these, these regulations should be, uh, should be statutory regulations or self-regulations like a self-regulatory code that the industry favours. So they were heavily against the government or the people having a say through government, uh, rather they would look after it themselves. So the industry made the point then that we can be, um, we can be called upon and be trusted to police ourselves in a way that protects the public good. Has there been enough time passed and enough evidence of self-regulation by the industry to know whether that in fact is true? We have a huge amount of experience from self-regulation and other areas around, particularly around tobacco and alcohol, and really that kind of uh, enforcement has really been discredited. This is largely voluntary. There are no sanctions. There are no penalties if if companies uh, breach the the self the the self-regulatory code. They're usually responsive and reactive, and so people have to complain. There's usually no no vetting system. So. They've been shown to be full of holes, really. And the in, in Australia, for example, we've had self-regulatory codes for a long time and uh, marketing to children has gone up and up. Uh, I don't think that they provide sufficient protection. There's no evidence that they do. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like, in your opinion, industry self-regulation has been tried, it's been given a fair test, and it hasn't worked. In my opinion, it has. It's been given a fair trial in other areas, as I mentioned, but it's also been given a fair trial in this particular area around marketing to children. What it's interested in is making sure that the advertisements, each single advertisement, is legal and decent and not offensive and not misleading. What it doesn't do is deal with the huge volume of highly effective, sophisticated marketing which influences behaviour in the wrong direction for children. Okay, so can you give us a sense of what some of the Sydney principles are? You mentioned the one that the industry objected to, which is that these should be put, in, put into effect in a mandatory way. Uh, but what are some of the principles? And give us a flavor for that, please. So the first off is that they need to be child-centered. So they need to support the rights of the child and to be protective of the child. So that's that's kind of fundamental. They need to be statutory. And as I said, that one, that one was the one that was contested. They need to cover all forms of media. At the moment, we sort of focus on television, but their marketing is now disappearing into a whole lot of other forms of media. So they do need to be comprehensive. They need to be enforced and they need to be monitored and they need to go across borders as well. That may not be such a problem here, but for example in Europe where marketing is banned to children in Sweden, they get Swedish broadcasting from Scotland um, to, so they can feed in the commercial channels targeting children in Swedish. So uh, the cross-border uh, issue is really important as well. All right. Um so they're called the Sydney Principles because the, they were ratified or agreed upon at a meeting in Sydney, Australia. At the Inter- International Congress on Obesity in Sydney, that's right. Okay. So is there a way people can get a copy of these and read the paper that you've written on the issue? Yeah. So if they go to www.iotf.org, then they just look for the Sydney Principles there and they'll find them there. So there's a set of principles plus plus the paper on the process uh, that we provided. Good. And I think it's also true that if you just Google something like, if you just put in Sydney principles, just put will, in Sydney principles, this will come, come up. up. Well, yeah. thank you so much for doing this important work and sharing it with us. You're welcome. Our guest today was Professor Boyd Swinburne from Australia. I uh, welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other podcasts. 
and other resources that the Rudd Center at Yale University has to offer. Thank you.